Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, and we ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast link and find us and all the other fine NR podcasts right there on the website. Listen, enjoy, please share, and leave reviews for Political Beats. I'm Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Scott, I thought we'd already talked about this. Uh, I've been pretty clear on it. Um, this this episode isn't going to happen today uh, uh, unless you give me, in writing, a signed contract stipulating that I get 90% of the speaking time on this show and you get 10%. That's a interesting offer. I'll have to consider it and get back to you via a Facebook post. Uh, uh, you know what? Our, our guest gets zero percent. I don't care how long he's been on this show with us. We you know, cut him out. Times he's been here. He's a hired gun at this point. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll, pay, we'll pay him a salary. <laughs> Find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. And our, good, good luck with your political beats cover band. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> our guest today is returning for a second time, and for a second time, we'll be covering two brothers who really don't like each other very much. Uh, previously on a political beats episode covering the Kinks, he's also a visiting scholar at American Enterprise Institute and the author of the recent book. The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the Creation of American Oligarchy. He's Jay Cost. Jay, welcome back to Political Beats. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, before we introduce our band for today's episode, uh, I know you've done this once previously, but for our new listeners, of which more and more are coming on every single day, Jay Cost, tell us about your, uh, your role in this, in this political world. Yeah, well, I used to write for uh, the Weekly Standard, may it rest in peace, and uh, uh, I am currently a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where I've been working on um, uh, research on the political parties, currently writing a biography of James Madison, and uh, I also host, like you guys, a National Review-sponsored podcast called constitutionally speaking so little kind of a different vibe but uh, we enjoy it so it keeps me busy and don't we have to call you doctor now since the last time you were on the show uh you can but you don't have to <laughs> <laughs> all right well a personal preference i suppose right uh today's uh, band uh, quite frankly is one of my favorite bands of all time and uh so happy some time ago to find out that jay loves this band too out of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, they are no more. And as we'll get to later, uh, it's not likely we'll see them anymore in the future, though Though most uh, most members still are alive. There is just so much bad blood happening with uh, what was once called the most rock and roll, rock and roll band, the Black Crows. And uh, we first turn things over to Jay for an introduction as to how he came to find the Black Crows, why he loves them, and why anybody else, Jay, should care about this here band. Oh, wow. That's a great question. So I uh, had the rare privilege of seeing the Black Crows tour with Jimmy Page in 2000. They were doing a joint tour with the Who where the the Crows and Page would do one night and the Who would do another night. And uh, the tour, the Crows Page tour blew up in spectacular fashion. Supposedly, Jimmy Page hurt his back, but Weirdly enough, they never got back together to do anything else ever again. 
so, but I, the, I was one of the living in Pittsburgh at the time. I was one of the first stops on the tour, so I saw them, and really enjoyed them. Um, and then a couple years later, um, when they got back together. I saw them open for Tom Petty in the summer of 2005, and that was when I really got into them. And then I saw them at uh, Halloween in Chicago at oh, the Riviera Theater. Those are good shows. In, two, in 2005, and from that from that show onward, I have been hooked. And I like the Black Crows because they're unabashedly retro. Um, and uh, they're they're very classic rock oriented, if you want, you know, for lack of a better phrase. But they're really interesting. Uh, they bring their own unique vibe to things, and their musicianship and songwriting are just, in my opinion, top notch. And I really feel like, far from being like a retro band, that you know, if they had been born twenty years earlier, they could have run with the best of them in the seventies, in my opinion. How about you, Scott? Well, this is a band um, that I, I own more music from the Black Crows than any other band out there. And it, it's one that I, uh, I guess, I mean, grew up with. I mean, I liked the Black Crows uh, as they were getting big. Although, ironically or coincidentally enough, I, I really don't like Hard to Handle. And I, I still don't. When I when I first heard it back in 1990 or whatever, I, I was like, this, this stinks. I, I don't like this song at all. <laughs> And uh, it still doesn't do a whole lot for me, but I can tell you, I, I remember exactly where I was. I remember seeing the Remedy video for the very first time on MTV with that the blue background of the barefoot Chris Robinson, the backup singers, and I saw Remedy and I'm like, oh, okay. This I like. This I like a lot. And really, from that point forward, from Southern Harmony all the way through the end of their career, this was this was the band for me. I was such a, such a classic rock hound, right, during the 90s for the most part. That, that's where I, in my, most of my education came from. So in terms of current artists, there weren't a ton that I really tried to cover, or not cover, but, but follow on an album by album basis, but the Black Crows were one of them. So, you know, you know, waiting in line at Best Buy to to get their album on the Tuesday release date. Uh, tracking their tours, even though I couldn't attend because I wasn't old enough uh, in many cases. Uh, trading live shows with others, especially after I got to, got to college. Um, you know, the Black Crows are always a very taper-friendly and trader-friendly band in their career. So you had some really good, I mean, not like a guy holding up a stick mic in the middle of the crowd, but sometimes you got soundboards, sometimes you just had outstanding versions of live shows. And something I loved, and I think we'll talk about a little later, they they have impeccable taste in covers. They, they were the best live band going in the mid-90s, and they picked fantastic cover songs. Um, there are a few things that really widened my musical tastes, and one of them was the Black Crows and the songs that they chose to cover during those live shows and then hearing them back with the tapes and the CDs that were traded among fans. Um, I, I, you know, they, they, they are a throwback, as Jay said, in a way, 
and I think the first thing that people will say once you say, oh, I like the Black Crows is, is oh, yeah, you know, the, the, they wish they were the Rolling Stones, right? The Rolling Stones Wrong. wannabes, Rolling Stones ripoffs. And for that first album, there's some of that, certainly. Uh, although I think Humble Pie and the Faces especially are more, are more uh, accurate touchstones. But they really were their own thing on every album after that and really didn't repeat themselves uh, didn't repeat that first album until maybe by your side, right? Um, but didn't they weren't formulaic? They they weren't doing the same thing over and over on these albums. They really were kind of growing and expanding and looking at new things and bringing in new influences. And so one of the worst things I think I hear about the Black Crows is, is someone saying that you know they're just they're just the Stones. They're not. There's so much more than that. And even that early Stones influence really didn't really didn't define them in that way. I wish they were still playing today. I wish the brothers didn't hate each other, uh, especially because at the end of their career, after the reunion, those albums are pretty darn good, as we'll talk about uh, later on. I just think they had so much more in them as a band. Uh, But man, oh man, I love the Black Crows. And if there's anything I want to do in this episode, in addition to sharing, you know, album tracks and unreleased tracks that people might not have heard, is to really hammer home that they were so much more, so, so much more than just being, you know, the the Rolling Stones ripoff or the the 70s wannabes. They really were their own thing. And they really were one of the best, best bands working in the 90s. But of course, totally. the Black Crows. Of course, the Black Crows were so much more than being a Rolling Stones ripoff. They were a Faces ripoff. That's, <laughs> that's what the Black Crows were. Okay, you know, for those listening, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, you may not know this, but uh, the first time I ever heard anything by the Black Crows, with the exception of Hard to Handle, which you know just broke through when you were a kid because you heard that on the radio, it was a big mega hit. But beyond that one track, the first time I heard a single song by the Black Crows was three weeks ago. When Scott very kindly uh, dropped uh, basically a metric ton of music on my head and said, absorb this because we will be doing my favorite band. And I was like, oh, no. Um, and, of course, the first thing that comes through when you listen to them, and we'll talk about it in these early albums, is that how much they want to be the faces. The faces, maybe one of the most underrated bands of all time. In my opinion, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, faces. This is you know, Rod Stewart and Ron Wood joined the original Small Faces, who were like a 60s pop act. Um, and then, you know, that group already had Ian McLaughlin, and most importantly, it had Ronnie Lane, who was a fantastic bassist, singer, songwriter in his own right. And they put out throughout the 70s some of the best hard blues folk uh, Americana rock that you can imagine um, that never really quite showed up on their albums per se so much of it was spread out in other places the faces would be an interesting band to cover one day but because they never had that big breakthrough everybody kind of knows stay with me but they think it's a mm-hmm. rod stewart song uh they've always been something of a cult band so it's kind of fun to hear another band that said like you know who sold probably what 17 times as many records as the faces <laughs> for sure i mean black crows were huge in the early 90s you go back and look at how many millions and millions of albums their their first three in particular sold they, they just probably blew the faces out of the water and yet that's who they really wanted to be which is you know this uh, you know a really powerful blues rock band with a something of a good time vibe you know their 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 live concerts were like parties basically they could go in any number of directions if they wanted to and you know what there are 
far, far worse things in the world to want to base yourself on if you're a rock band. You know, the world has enough Stones ripoffs, right? The world doesn't have enough Faces ripoffs. Right, yeah. <laughs> and they need more. And there's nobody who ever, I don't even want to say ripoff isn't fair because as Scott says, I do think, you know, even just absorbing this stuff afresh, that the crows actually ended up growing into their own kind of sound. But in my opinion, it took a while. Uh, when I'm listening to this music. And I guess I'm probably never going to be as much of a super fan as the rest of you guys. But I listened to those first two albums, uh, both of which were massive commercial successes. And are, you know, I think among people who are just sort of going casually familiar with the band, they're, they're two most famous records. And I'm not, as, I'm not as sold on them as everybody else is. And it's only later on in their career where I feel like they found their footing. And then, of course, they promptly lost it with drugs and apparently, you know, horrible record labels and, you know, brotherly disharmony, all kinds of classic rock stories that we'll be covering when we talk about the band during this episode. But it, it, it's a really interesting group to discover, you know, after being made myself a classic rock fan. You know, that was how I came up as well as a kid. And yet, just passed right over these guys and never even knew what they were about until very recently. So it's been a lot of fun exploring their stuff. Before we get to the first album, uh, uh, you know, there's not really, truly like this, you know, huge backstory to the band, right? I mean, they started in the mid '80s. Uh, Chris and, and Rich were the were the brothers and, and the main cogs in the machine. They were originally called Mister Crow's Garden after a, a children's book. And what's also interesting to note is that these guys were actually really like rem heads i mean they, they weren't dyed in the wool stones 70s rock fans they loved rem you know they were from georgia so was rem and and they really were big big fans that's the way they were early on not until they met george draculius um did did he kind of turn them on to some of those bands like the stones i mean rich robinson wasn't writing songs at open g tuning on his guitar until he met george Dr- draculius Steve Gorman came on relatively early on in Mr. Crow's Garden, and Steve's a, a fantastic drummer and generally thought of as the third Robinson brother. I mean, he's been with them and around them for so, so long and really was an integral part of the band. So they, uh, they did some demos in the, in the, in the late 80s, um, passed on a couple of offers from smaller labels, and eventually landed... Uh, with George Draculius and in Deaf American Records, which uh, released their first album in 1990. One that many people know, their best-selling album, and had two smash hits that still get, well, actually, at least three or four get played on classic rock radio these days. But Hard to Handle and She Talks to Angels were were massive. Uh, and that's Shake your moneymaker. And as I said, my first impression of Shake Your Moneymaker was not positive. I, I I heard Hard to Handle on the radio and thought, this guy's voice isn't uh, really where I, yeah, that's not what I want to hear. But they grew on me. They grew on me awfully, uh, awfully quickly with the release of the next album. So, uh, Jay, we'll toss it back to you to start our conversation on Shake Your Moneymaker, the big breakthrough for the Crows, their debut album. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that really stands out to me with Shake Your Money Maker. First of all, I like the title, um, especially because they didn't include that song on the tracks, mm-hmm. right? The, El- the Elmore James title, uh, which I-, I think is just kind of a gutsy move. Um, but I-, I think that you have this album, it still holds up, I think, it- it as uh, in its own right, rather than just sort of like, oh, well, this is their first stab at things. And, and one of the, th- I think my favorite part of this album is actually Rich Robinson. 
Um, and he really establishes himself. And, and I think maybe this is where the Rolling Stones comparisons happen mm -hmm. as somebody who's really a very capable rhythm guitarist um, and really good at coming up with uh, riffs to build songs around. As a matter of fact, if you listen to the almost the entire album, um, twi Twice as Hard, Jealous Again, um, Thick and Thin, Stare It Cold. Those, the, the, to, to my ears, the best songs on the album all start off with a really, really solid rocking Rich Robinson opening riff. Mm -hmm. And he really sort of, and I, I think this is one of the great things about this band, is that they're never really boring because he, Rich is really good at coming up with hooks. on on this album um, the album i think is also i mean we could go track for track but one thing I, I do have to point out that i think that the crows is most loathed song is is probably on this album which is strut and blues yeah which i think they they <laughs> really really hated uh you know because one of the things that the black crows did when they go live on the road um is they play pretty much everything off of their entire catalog you, you they, they could throw anything in at like any time at any show you never knew what they were going to do except strut and blues <laughs> but it's money in the bank that they would never play that song the last time they played it was all the way back in like 1992 they never played it since so i i just sort of think that's that's really funny but it's very stripped down sort of um nuts and bolts kind of record their sound is is pretty simple here um i think they're also held back by the fact that jeff cease is their guitarist at this point um they don't really have you know mark ford comes on at their second album so the sound kind of becomes fuller uh chuck lavelle is also playing keyboards here and as yeah. soon as they they broke through what they they hired like a full-time keyboardist eddie harsh um and so there's a real sort of fleshing out of their sound between their first album and their second album but the main the main elements of of the album of the black crows i think are are here and especially like at the song um jealous again there's a moment where it's just rich playing the guitar and chris sort of singing along and i have always felt like Right there, that's the essence of the Black Crows. The two of them, right? Chris has that really soulful voice, and Rich, who can just find it, this great groove on the guitar, that that was the whole band right there. Stop. Don't you think I'll tell you, baby, if I only could 
You might actin' crazy, you might just too proud, you might just plain lazy. The thing is, is of course, this is the album that got them the rap as being Stones imitators, which again I find somewhat ridiculous because this does every song on this record sounds like it could have come from a Faces album, mm-hmm. but it, it would have been like one of the weaker songs on that album. So I'm not a huge fan of this record. But of course, I think the real reason they got compared to the Stones was because of Chris Robinson. Because and this is the thing that maybe you don't get unless you see them, unless you watch the videos. He looked exactly like circa 1969, 19. 70 Mick Jagger. He's you know, you know very tall, thin. Was wearing like the the tight shirts and the bell bottoms and doing the whole like the very you know visually staged dancing kind of a thing. Very got a lot of self confidence. You know, very got a lot of stage presence in the way he, he put himself forth. And that was very Jagger. That was the kind of thing that I think that people saw visually. And then they saw these guys playing guitars and they said, all right, oh that that's Ron Wood and that's that's Keith Richards. And so that they and they also probably weren't nearly as familiar with the faces because frankly they weren't as famous. Right. This album is it's not bad eh, that's her that's the best i can say about it i think you know, hard to handle i don't know why you didn't like that song scott i mean i think it's 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 you know it's a song for me that was always familiar through the grateful dead because i'm a huge deadhead right and so like you know pig pens versions from like 1970 71 are famous you know and they would always end with these incredibly blazing jerry garcia solos and they were like a real highlight of their shows from that era uh, and so when i listen to this version it kicks off really well you know has lavelle on the keyboards playing underneath doing the and then you have chris coming in and he he so desperately wants to be rod stewart he isn't yet because he just doesn't have the vocal talent you, you can hear him trying to intone in those rod stewart like ways but he just doesn't have the chops yet his voice is going to improve a lot over time actually which is kind of interesting to see him grow as a singer doesn't have it yet but the real problem with the song is that it doesn't go anywhere that you keep expecting that big explosive guitar solo to bring it all home i mean that's that's really what makes the dead's version of classic that's what this song is about really it's about the band's groove the the lyrics are basically just sort of like you know you know blues masculinity riffs but uh you know that's the music that really slams at home and when you know you've just got this sort of wimpy guitar solo going on i guess <laughs> jeff cease is a guy i never knew about and i guess i don't really have to learn too much about because he leaves after this album it's a little disappointing and then there are songs like she talks to angels which i guess you know i, I hate to keep you know talking about this band in terms of other groups but i would have liked she talks to angels a lot more if i hadn't already heard debris by the faces because it sounds exactly like a nick off of that very famous or very well respected at least ronnie lane song from a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse and uh, as everyone says strut and blues is terrible but yeah most of these songs are pretty good i think seeing things is actually my favorite track on this album uh it, it's a long slow ballad but it really works and you know it has that that sort of um the confidence that it takes to pull off one of those long slow burn bluesy rock ballads uh, you you got to have a lot of um, chutzpah to pull those things off when you're this young as a band because you can really fail if you don't know what you're doing on those. They can become just obnoxious and impossible to listen to, but seeing th- things is great. 
I think Sam thinks is a song that um, if you listen to live versions later on, you to your point, Jeff, like Chris's voice substantially improves yeah. Yeah. over the course of his career. Like, like I would. I would take like a 40 year old Chris Robinson singing, seeing things in 2006 uh, over 25 year old Chris Robinson singing in, in 1990. Sure. I think the real knock I have against this album is that the band didn't, I don't know if they sounded live like much better, much looser. Yeah, this early on in the career, or if that's something that they only acquired, you know, after you know spending months and months on tour, out on the road, jamming. Uh, but on the album, they don't. They feel a little rickety, and I think part of that is related to the production. This is an album that still has some of those annoying late '80s, early '90s, like hard rock metal ticks. Mm. So you get a very metallic sheen on some of the guitars. I think actually this this still shows up on their next album too, which is a much you know much more beloved album among the fans uh but uh, I, I i still detect some of these sort of glossy ticks it sort of reminds me when we talked about our about our pearl jam episode with uh, josh jordan we talked about how none of us really like 10 which is a super <laughs> famous album of course but it's because of that production which just feels so dated there's a certain dated sounding feeling to the production on this album and the next one uh, and i think that actually holds it back more than anything else and i'm still not quite sure whether it was all down to the production or if it's down to the band not yet you know really coming up with that organic groove that they would really start to acquire later on i think this is an okay album i guess it's pretty close with what i think both you guys are saying i i I know for some people this is their their favorite album and and i just yeah i can't get behind that jeff's right on with i think the criticism or the observation about the production style i think some of the rockers do suffer because of that metallic uh, edge to it, although I think that cleans up by the next album, but we'll talk about that, that in a moment. I mean, there's the, the you know, Strut and Blues, and I think Could I Have Been So Blind is kind of perfunctory. Um, seeing Things might be my favorite song of the album as well. There's just, uh, you know, I think it's the first time that Chris really connects with a, with a great set of lyrics, and that very slow unfurling with that circular guitar figure for the first two verses or so before things kicking and you can also see how they're going to use at harsh on the next album because there's such a need for someone like that when you hear a song like uh seeing things i like sister luck as well rich has some really interesting chord changes through sister luck but much like on hard to handle the the solo part on sister luck is just wasted time and it's just (laughs) jeff sees isn't doing anything of interest on, on sister luck twice as hard is my favorite rocker that I think holds up from this album. And again, from the first song and the first album, those Rich Robinson riffs are right there. Uh, Chuck Level on the piano. I would love to have heard it louder in the mix in many places on this album. Um, but there's no swing to a lot of the rock songs too, which I think is what Jeff was kind of getting at. The, there's no swing. There's no real rhythm to it. It still is very stiff. Uh, and they're still a young band, which I mean, so it's not surprising, but Nothing quite really swings like it would on on the forthcoming albums. Jealous Again is great. Probably the most stonesy tune on the record in in my mind. Stare It Cold right at the end. One of the first times I think Chris really stretches himself vocally and strains, try to hit some notes that he's not quite capable yet. Steve Gorman is, is a little bit tied in on this record too. As a drummer, he would really flourish on, 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 on the coming albums. But uh, even on Stare It Cold, which I like, you know, the drumming is just, you know, it's in time and it's there, but there's not much happening. There's a lack of texture, I think, on a lot of these songs that would get so much better uh, just on the, on the very next album. 
Um, but there are a couple of highlights. It's not an album that I really return to very often. Um, you know, I listened to it a bunch when it when it came out in the years afterwards. And the songs that I, you know, you want to hear, I mean, Seeing Things gets played occasionally, but Jealous Again and Twice as Hard, you can hear that anytime you want, pretty much, if you turn on the right radio station. So, I, I don't, you know, the album tracks are forgotten, and they're probably forgotten for a, for a decent reason. It's a, it's a good debut, but uh, they'd make some personnel changes and, and be back in two years with something I think is much, much, much better. So I'm assuming you return to this next record quite a bit more. Uh, and that next record is uh, a little album called The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, which is a fantastic name. I, I believe it was actually <laughs> taken from like an old timey Baptist yes. like hymnal or something like that. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful title. Um, this one is the one where like, you know, real Black Crow fans or we'll just, you know, get up in your face and say, you got to hear this album. This album is amazing. This album is where they became true gods. And I don't quite agree. Uh, again, and I'm going to go first here since I'm the one who's obviously in the minority. <laughs> Everybody else loves Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. And I think it is significantly better than Shake Your Moneymaker. Um, but it still has, to my mind, some of the problems that bog down the first album. Uh, I, I think that there are too many songs where Chris just uh, squawks as the only way I can put it. I really hate his singing on Bad Luck, Blue Eyes, Goodbye. I hate his singing on Sometimes Salvation, where it's just like uh, he, 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 he just it feels like he's hollering in my ears and there's no subtlety to it at all. I don't like, you know, I, I like don't like the way some of these songs are recorded. They still have that early metallic sheen. There isn't that sort of grimy, organic groove that the band would soon acquire after this but that said this is the album where they start putting out actual masterpieces i mean i think there's one in particular that i just the minute i heard it i was like all right the band has matured and that's called thorn in my pride um that i think was actually a hit single i i have to, i'd have to yep. go back and check yep um it, it which surprises me because it's long it's like six minutes long uh it deserves every second of that running time sometimes the criticism you can label um black black crows tunes is that they they go on for too long they were very fond of that mid-tempo lope but on this out this song he just earns every second of it and it just keeps on changing too what i love about thorn on my pride is it's the first time where i'm listening to a song that keeps on adding in new parts and new in developing mm. into new places yes. it's it's not just you know a simple verse chorus first thing it it actually self-consciously patterns itself as a rock epic and it pulls it off in spades You know, the other ones are probably ones that you guys already know are great. Black Moon Creeping, I think, is magnificent. My Morning Song as well. Uh, but 
one for me, you know, again, I'm the non-Crows fan, so y'all can laugh at me, but it does not rise to the level of where they would get later on. I mean, I really think this is a classic, classic album. I love Southern Harmony. It's a desert island album for me. From start to finish, with the exception of Time Will Tell, I, I wish that that Marley cover wasn't the concluding song on the album. I like that song, actually, because that uh, song has some variety in it, okay? I know you guys talked about this earlier that yeah. you didn't. I like Time Will Tell. Um, but, you know, the biggest change from album one to album two is the change in lead guitarist. Uh, so Mark yep. Ford comes in. Mark Ford was in a band called Burning Tree, and he and Rich just... just get going from song one and it's a totally different feel a totally different sound the way these two guitars work on this album is just phenomenal in my mind and i i've read the album uh liner notes so often i can tell you exactly what they say you know the personnel on the album rich robinson a huge selection of guitars very loud in the left speaker mark ford guitars and most of the bits called the solo that's what it says in the liner notes. And I remember for the first time when this album came out, listening to two different guitarists do their thing, how they would interplay with each other and how Rich provided the riffs, how I knew because he was in the left speaker, how Mark would play the solos, how they would play off of each other. I love that little bit of, of, of information uh, to, to give my what 13, 12 year old self uh, a little advantage in listening. This was recorded in eight days. They had it virtually from the start. I think it's a really almost immaculately sequenced album. I love the ride it takes you on for me. Sing Me Through Sometime Salvation is one It's like a three-part. Then Hotel Illness and Black Moon Creeping, and then No Speak, No Slave until the end is, is part three for me of this album. But again, right from the start, Sting Me is a fantastic lead-off track. And right from the start, you've got um, more people playing a role. Ed Harsh is involved in Sting Me. They brought him in to play keyboards and piano. There's that the, the female backing singers. Johnny Colt, the bassist, has a place on this album from track one. He's much more prevalent. I think after the first chorus of Sting Me is one of the more exciting times in Black Crow's history. Mark Ford's going crazy in, in one ear. Rich is filling and riffing in the other speaker. It is really special stuff. Can you percussion which they begin to bring in there's a block in the solo there's hand claps in the in in the bridge and this is the song too where steve gorman arrives listen to his fills on sting me um so it's it's just a great way to start the album remedy was the big hit it's a fantastic song um i disagree vociferously on sometime salvation which i love i love sometime salvation i think it's a very black crow's song meaning it's one of the times when they when they begin to shape themselves and not totally be influenced by others 
Um, the way that song unfolds, Gorman's playing that ride cymbal throughout. Mark Ford's solo, to me, is one of the absolute highlights of the record. And, you know, Ford would be replaced by, what, five or six? Well, four or five guitarists through time. No one played that solo live like Mark Ford did. Spastic, yet tuneful explosion of solo. that Jeff didn't like Chris's vocals here, but I love that. By the end, Chris is just begging and pleading in Sometimes Salvation, ragged. Um, that's a great, great track. Um, and then I guess we'll get toward the end. No Speak, No Slave is fantastic. Mark Ford with like this multi-layered solo. You know, for me, it's a wonder, kind of like Mick Taylor in The Stones, how he doesn't get songwriting credit on some of these songs, and even into Amorica, too, because so much of the song is what Mark Ford does with his parts. Um, they are just fabulous. My Morning Song has this remedy-like chug to it, and it brings you to church, takes you up, brings you down, slows things, and then toward the end, the crescendo to one final chorus uh, Chris isn't writing lyrics quite as well as he would on Amorica, but there are some really fine parts here. Um, some, some nice lines going back to like Hotel Illness, and especially on my morning song, if your rhythm ever falls out of line, you can bring it to me and I will make it all right. I love the way Chris delivers that, that, that line. So yeah, I mean, to me, Southern Harmony is just a, a, a quantum leap uh, ahead of Shake Your Moneymaker. And is the first in this string of just outstanding work from the Black Crows. I would take this album with me wherever I went. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really amazing how much they matured in the course of from their first to their second album. And it, it I think it shows how seriously they took like this is one way that they are sort of different from the faces is that, you know, the faces were sort of in it to have a good time. All right, it was just sort of the you know what makes the faces great. Um, the Black Crows, first of all, the Black Crows didn't have a good time with each other, <laughs> never did. Uh, but second of all, they, unlike I think the faces, they were real serious about what they were doing. So, you know, they get money after their first records a hit, and what do they do? They hire a full time keyboardist, right? Who's mm -hmm. in with the band uh, all the way through 2005, Eddie Harsh. Um, they also bring, you know, backup singers, which they use consistently throughout the uh, throughout the record. Um, so they're they're taking themselves, and also the titles "Southern Harmony" and "Musical Companion." And I think there's one knock against the Black Crows is some they they take themselves a little too seriously. I think you could say, um, uh, but I 
that that's just sort of part of who they are. Um, and I think you can see a couple a couple things I would point out that uh, beyond what both of you mentioned. Um, I I would say like you can sort of track the growth from their first album to their second album in a couple different ways. Um, like for instance, if you take the song. Um, seeing things and compare it to the song sometimes salvation chris robinson likes to do what i call he likes to do testifying songs right <laughs> it's, it's a very southern thing right he gives up and gives some sort of testimony in his in in song right uh, seeing things is is the sort of the testifying song on shake your money maker sometimes salvation is the testifying song on southern harmony and it's it's a much better song. Sometimes Salvation is a much better song. Mm-hmm. It's a much more interesting song lyrically, and he sings it much better as well. Um, and that, I, that's a that's a sign of their growth. He, lyrically, he's growing lyrically. Um, Sting Me, for instance, is a very is like it's actually a really cynical song, um, which and the first album didn't really have a lot of cyn- cynicism. Right. Uh, Remedy is is more straightforward. Uh, but like Black Moon Creeping has a really kind of sort of a scene setting kind of lyrics kind of puts you almost imagine being like in a swamp or something yeah. like in Louisiana, like almost kind of a voodoo kind of feel, <laughs> which then he I, I also think he kind of recreates with my morning song as well. Um, so lyrically, I think they're doing some real he's doing some really interesting stuff. And I would point out as well. Right. One of the one of the recurring themes that's going to percolate through the Black Crows. The next couple albums is drugs. Right. Drugs are a problem for the Black Crows. And Hotel Illness is the first drug song in this sort of the vein of like, oh, drugs are a problem. Right. Like um, that this this room smells like hotel illness. The scars I hide are now your business, right? Like that's a that's a drug line, right? And mm. this is like a heroin heroin line. Heroin percolates up through their records actually quite a bit later on in the decade, uh, but you can already see it there. not my favorite album um and i kind of agree with jeff on this point like i'm a um, well i guess i'll make two other points right in terms of like uh, musically i mean i think the music speaks for itself but i would point out that like uh both thorn in my pride and my morning song are regular features in their live shows and both of those songs would be turned into like these 10 minute (laughs) uh, jam filled extravaganzas where they would also put other songs in the middle of them so like when I saw them once uh, I still remember this they they started out with my morning song and then they go into a jam and then they they, they went into magic bus from the who (laughs) and then they went back into my morning song and bring up brought it too close 
I think it speaks to the sort of elasticity of this music that they, it's really it's it's capable of of doing a lot of stuff, right? Um, whereas with their first album, rarely, if ever, did they did they expand their first songs into lengthy jams like they would do like a hard to handle jam uh but i actually always thought that was a little on the boring side but the <laughs> my morning song jam was always a really interesting and i think it yeah. speaks to uh it's just a really interesting um uh song i think the pacing on this one is a little off um and i because i think bad luck blue eyes is just is a weak track and the fact that you know they it comes with two really strong rockers in a row which is itself i think i don't know almost kind of a mistake because sting me and remedy sound so similar um but then they slow it down with three songs in a row. And by the time, like sometimes salvation by that point, um, sometimes I just find myself tuning out a little bit because it's been too much mid tempo to slow tempo. And the fact that bad luck, blue eyes, which I think is the weakest track on the album, I think really detracts from sometimes salvation. Like when you hear that song live, it's like a punch in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so but what I exactly read, what I was feeling too, was like when you, when you get to those thrown in my pride is a great slow song, but then bad, blue, bad luck isn't. And then by the time it's, Time salvation. I'm like, oh, pick it up, please. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, I, one of the things, my favorite part of this album, though, is is six through nine, where it, I also call it like um, my buddy and I. We have this phrase that we we define Rolling Stones shows is the second half of the show is we call the defense of the crown, right, or the defense <laughs> of the title, right. They're just gonna hit you with like everything they have, and I feel like that's sort of what side two of uh, of Southern Harmony does. Hotel illness, Black Moon creeping, No Speak, No Slave, and My Morning Song. And they just like keep like one punch after another. Mm-hmm. You're just like left reeling in a, in a good way. Uh, it's also why I don't like time will tell on the record um first of all i've never been really in i I, i'm not a bob marley Marley fan personally i don't think their um their version of it adds very much but also i think it's a missed opportunity because i think they should have just like the end of my morning song to me is is the mic drop moment yeah like right done it walk off the stage like you've left you've left everything there is to leave like my morning song i really think like is really one of the all-time great Black Crow songs, um, and that's where that record should have left. This is the moment where uh, the first signs of discord between the brothers Robinson begin to show themselves. And we have the remnants of of this in in an album that came out a lot later on archival release called The Lost Crows. Maybe, Scott, you want to give us a brief uh, rundown of of how their, quote, troubled third album came to be? Yeah. uh, You know, this is, as you mentioned, available on uh, a two disc 
compilation, uh, though no one buys discs anymore, um, called The Lost Crows. And it's it's the Tall Sessions. It basically made an album that was going to be called Tall. And it, w- it would have been the, the next one after Southern Harmony. And this is, uh, as Jeff mentioned, where the strife begins to begin. Uh, the classic story from these sessions is Rich would work essentially during the day. And he'd record the album the way he wanted to record it. And then Chris would come in around midnight. And he'd erase everything Rich did and then record things the way he wanted to. Rich would come in the next day, record or erase everything Chris did, and on and on and on. Eventually, they got something together, which uh, you can hear on Tall. And the thing about Tall is most songs on the album actually made it onto Amorica or, or were used later. And so um, you had competing visions here. But what ended up being Tall is kind of Chris's vision for the album. And what ended up being Amorica, which we'll talk about in a second, was more of Rich's vision for that next album. Uh, I'm on team Rich here. I, I, I think virtually... Yeah, me too. Yeah, virtually all the songs that make it onto Amorica, Amorica are in better forms uh, than on Tall. Uh, there are a couple things to note. Uh, the very first song that Chris says he wrote by himself, everything, words and, and, and music, is a song called Tornado on Tall, which is actually a very pretty song. He'd use it later for one of his uh, solo uh, albums. That was not used at all later on in, in the Black Crow's career. And the one Never played live either. Yeah. The one song live. that I need you to listen to is Feathers. Uh, the studio versions on Tall, the, there are tons of live versions out there. I think there are even multiple studio versions, but there's, there's one on Tall. Feathers is, the, is a Black Crow song that will stop you in your tracks. I just think it's one of the highlights of their career. Never turned into anything on an actual released album. A very mellow, almost uh, Pink Floyd-esque uh, haunting melody to it. There's this wonderful guitar figure that Rich comes up with that pushes it through the early portion. It picks up steam. That middle eight section is just impeccable in my mind, which leads to this fabulous solo from Mark Ford before calming back down for the last mile of the song. Um, it's, it's uh, it, I think, one of the real highlights. Chris always liked Feathers a lot. Uh, he's referenced it in a few interviews through the years. I don't know if Rich didn't like it as much, but they still, you know, Magpie Salute has played it too, so he must like it a little bit. But I always wish that Feathers was available on, on a standard release. It's one of my favorite Black Rose tracks.
Speaking of career highlights, that brings us to Amorica. And, and you know, I said earlier at the beginning of the show, was, you know, I didn't really have any knowledge of, of the Black Rose at all outside of Hard to Handle. It's not entirely true. My one other indelible memory of the Black Crows is being a 13, 14-year-old kid and paging through the racks of CDs at the local Borders bookstore and being both fascinated and fairly horrified by the cover to Amorica, which I still consider to be one of the worst album covers <laughs> of the rock era. Uh, uh, folks, uh, it, it, let's put it this way. It's a picture that was taken from a cover of Hustler magazine in 1976. It is a very tightly uh, tight in focus shot of a lady and her nether regions covered, but not entirely, by a bikini. Not very tasteful. And I think that always made me sort of think like, well, this is a sleazy band that I don't want anything to do with. Um, the irony, of course, is that this music is sleazy. It's yes. much grimier. It's much dirtier. It's much messier. And this frankly is a masterpiece i will say this is the black crow's best album the second i turned this album on i heard a different band i heard a band that was now fully comfortable in its skin had its own sound and that sound was very much reminiscent of those great classic 70s bands that the people had always accused them of imitating but frankly if amorica had come out in the 70s it would have been as good or better than any of those classic albums. This is a, an album with 11 tracks. There isn't a single bad song on it, and it begins with such an incredible head of steam. You start with Gone, which has these really wonderful, funky rhythms from um, their drummer. I, uh, what was his name? Steve uh, Gorman. Steve yeah. Gorman. God, I love the rhythm on that. And then it goes into what could be maybe close to my favorite Black Crow song ever uh, called A Conspiracy which is just an amazing rock song. I had never heard it until literally two weeks ago. And I'm listening to this thing, and I'm thinking, well, this band absolutely knew what they were doing. It's such a wonderful lyric, too. You know, did you ever hear the one about last year? It was, it was all a lie. Ain't it funny how time flies? It's, it's a great lyric married to an incredible incredible set of riffs from Rich Robinson and it's so well produced. that is so much light years ahead of the somewhat simple sort of straight ahead live recorded production uh, you hear it particularly in the, the guitar tones that mark ford and rich robinson are getting out of their instruments this very kind of oily hazy mm. you know just you know very swampy textures i love every song on this record cursed diamond is i think chris is his best vocally yes, why is there in time uh, descending i want to talk about that one a little later i'm going to kick it over to you guys but yeah this is the moment where i was you know, i was listening to the first two albums and i'm like well you know scott his tastes in mind they don't always align i don't maybe i don't <laughs> see what he sees in this band then i heard a morica and i was like all right i get it this was a great band because this is one of the great albums of the 1990s 
Yeah, I, lo- I love this album. Um, I-, I think this album, unlike uh, Southern Harmony, doesn't have a weak track on it. Um, uh, and again, I think to sort of you can see their their growth because you know the great testifying song on this one is Cursed Diamond. Mm-hmm. That's his great you know his his big testify song, and that's a really some really hard hitting self analysis on that one yes. too. It's really, really. He's writing. He's writing some really interesting music there. I think the the rockers on this. I mean, there's no, there's nothing like remedy on this. That's I guess maybe conspiracy is probably the closest thing to a straightforward rocker on this. But everything is kind of a little. I, I, it's a very different sound than Southern Harmony, which is uh, interesting because, like Southern Harmony, kind of I think has this sort of swampy kind of voodoo kind of groove to it. This one really does kind of sound like like they're stoned but in a and i mean that in like a good way everything's sort of a little a little off in that regard um i think the lyrics are really fun on this one too like mm-hmm. she gave good sunflower is actually really body song it's just really body um but in kind of a fun way high head blues is sort of fun in that regard too um i would say uh the the, the probably my favorite song on this one I might be gone I don't know. Gone. That I come back to again and again and again on this one is wiser time, I think. And also the 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 placement of ballad in urgency, which leads into wiser time. Yeah, uh, is it, it, and musically they the two work together and very regularly when they in live shows they would play them back to back. And wiser time is the first time we see the black crows do something which they become really really good at is they can write songs about the road yeah right the joys of the road the 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 strain of the road the exhaustion of the road but how they'd never leave the road behind and this is something they're going to keep doing this from now until the time they break up nobody can write a song about the road quite like the black crows <laughs> um and so i mean and a lot of a lot of the album, I mean, it's sort of this continuation, like you know, like you know, we was talking about with Southern Harmony, where like Mark Ford, and this is a family podcast, so we can't say as he's known among Crows fans, but it's Mark F and Ford, right? Uh, the the hardcore Crows fans, um, you know, Mark Ford and Rich Robinson seem to have like the same brain or something when mm-hmm. they just are like, you know, that like almost like preternatural sense of what the other one's going to do.
And 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 so now we also have this is the second album in a row where it's the same six guys yep. and you can tell they've sort of, they've been on the road together and they have a feel for each other and that this is just a band that has just found its sound. And the other thing I I guess I'd make one other point. I mean, I guess two other points. First of all, the album cover. Um, it's one of the damp bummers about the Black Crows. I don't know why, but early in their career, they would engage in like cheap theatrics. And they were gonna they were, um, gonna, they were gonna make it worse. I mean, they're gonna call the album "Stick Out Your Corkscrew" with the Black Crows. That was the original idea yeah, for it. Yeah, so, yeah, and and like another thing, like Chris Robinson, like you know, he get real mouthy in the press about marijuana, which I think that was I thought always felt that was really cynical. And then they opened to they had this big gig where they were opening for ZZ Top I think in 1991 they mm-hmm. which is a, was a huge huge thing for them and Chris Robinson got mouthy in the press about like corporate sponsorship of rock and roll shows it's like first of all dude it's ZZ Top okay it's not like high <laughs> art form you know I mean it's like she's got legs you know and dark sunglasses give me a break but second of all it just seemed like real it seems cynical right like this sort of what cynical way to to make yourself seem edgy right like just let the music do the talking man like and, and it's one of the pet peeves i have about chris robinson throughout the course of his career is is how mouthy he is in the press but i kind of view the album cover as sort of being kind of cynical like that as well so uh, that that i i think would be the the sort of the main point i guess uh, the one other point too i would mention is that and I, this i think this is not unrelated right is that like even though southern harmony uh, was number one in the charts um it opened at number one it didn't sell as many copies as shake your money maker mm-hmm. and uh it went platinum but Shake Your Money Maker, I think, went four times platinum. Yep. Uh, this one does not go platinum. Actually, Shake Your Money Maker went five times platinum. Southern Harmony went two times platinum. And I feel like the album cover was like a kind of a cheap attempt to b- bump their record sales. And so the interesting thing that happens here and like situating the Black Crows in the bigger like the bigger music environment of 1994 is that even though they're at a point where there's, they're really kind of finding their sound, their sound is not really going to be selling from this point forward. So like Amorica only goes gold and Amorica is the last of their albums to go, to go gold. And also Amorica doesn't finish it. Doesn't even make the top 10 in billboard in, in the record charts. So this is, I think commercially the black crows uh, have already, even though they're all, are only now artistically coming into their own, like commercially the sound, you know, like we have grunge and post grunge, right? Like the music industry is just, you know, moving in a different direction. Uh, but the crows are going to find, and I think that one of the things that sustains them for so long is that even though the industry as a whole shifts away, like the crows pick up this following of people like Scott and me who are like really into like real genuine rock and roll at this time. And also I think like the fact, and we'll get into this later, but like Jimmy Page, Mm -hmm. like after he and Robert Plant decide, you know, Robert Plant doesn't want to go out on tour and Jimmy Page is like, well, I got to go. I got to do something with somebody. I mean, who else is he going to go out with? Who else (laughs) is able to operate at that level? Right. Along with Jimmy Page. It's like the black crows. So I'm going to go out with them. Like, and so I've, I've, the, the crows it's they have a bigger following than like a cult following it's not like little feet right it's bigger than that but they're they're it 
their their mass appeal has shrunk, but then they they have picked up people like Scott and me who would like I I mean I've traveled hundreds of miles to go see them. I love Amorica, and on the right day, if you ask me, I might like it more than Southern Harmony. Um, but it's tight. It's tight. A few a few big uh, uh, comments first. The production on Amorica is immaculate. I love the way this album sounds. It's recorded just perfect. And that's a new a new producer, Jack Joseph Puig, is in to help them with that. I love the... This is the album I put on. You know, you get a new... Well, maybe people don't do this anymore. You get a new stereo or new speakers. You have to try something out, make sure it sounds... I, I always put on, on Amorica. I just love the way this album so, uh, sounds. Um, they did this promo video for Amorica, which I think you can find on YouTube, and it's wild. They're like handfuls of mushrooms and, uh, you know, half-naked women, and they're playing a, a conspiracy and gone. It's, it's, it's a little nuts. Uh, so you can find that if you want to watch it. Gone, to me, is just a kick-ass song, and it's always the sound to me of my high school bus rides because I, I had a, a freshman, sophomore in, in high school, I'd be taking the bus ride. I was not close to my school, so it was about 45 minutes in the bus. And so I'd pop on Amorica, and that, that opening of Gone, that Latin rhythm, that herky-jerky guitar open, that's the sound of my high school bus rides. I loved Amorica back then, still do. And at Gone's the, the track I play. I think Steve Gorman is the best drummer of his generation. Um, and, and Gone's the one I'd say, okay, well, start here and see what you think of Steve Gorman playing. He's incredible on Gone. He's incredible on this entire album. Um, and that rush in Gone, that, that full band entering just after the first verse when everything gets pumped up is, is, is amazing. begins to show you the expanded palette they're working with too not southern still southern but um dark greasy as jeff mentioned kind of gothic in a way and that's all over amorica i think this is the best chris robinson vocal album in the crows collection and as jeff mentioned earlier i think chris diamond is likely his best vocal performance on any black crows song curse diamond you know, just just begins slowly until you get to that ascending, those ascending chords, the chorus. Uh, Ford's solo gives me chills on Cursed Diamond, matched with Richard's just manic riffing. And those lyrics, too. Unzip my pride, baby, open me up wide so I can show this to you. Um, introspection, as, as, as Jay mentioned. One track that no one's mentioned yet that I, I find myself appreciating more is nonfiction. Uh, a slower track on the record, right 
toward the middle. Um, and again, some of those lyrics, some like their water shallow, I like mine deep, so very deep, tied to the bottom with a noose around my feet, which is somehow uh, the way Chris would handicap the crows through the years, as Jay uh, alluded to. <laughs> Mark Ford's delicate guitar on nonfiction just kind of juts in and out. Ed's piano is just beautiful. Love nonfiction. I'm no builder. I'm no gardener. I sing some songs. I'm a friend who's a photographer. There ain't no other language I know how to speak. Like the water shallow, I like mine. Uh, Wiser Time and Ballad, the way those two songs work so perfectly together. And I think it's because of their themes, too. Ballad is, is to me, like this this very sad anthem for an addict, which uh, certainly some of the crows were turning into around this time. And you've got that, that junction between the two with Ed's piano just shimmering into Wiser Time, which is this, you know, road song, this, this, this open road anthem, this freedom-searching song on a good day we can part the sea on a bad day glory beyond our reach and those dueling guitars leading up to the final explosion of emotion and wiser time one of my favorite favorite black rose moments i was yeah they usually they usually save that for the end of their shows yeah. toward the end that's why be disappointed when they didn't play them back to back because they fit yeah together. me too it's the same it's yeah, it's it's a too. continuation of of the song and uh, one other thing I'll mention is I think this was I think it's on tall but tied up and swallowed is a song worth checking out too which which ended up being a, <laughs> a, a B side on one of the tracks you don't you like that's that a one? dark song that's a dark song indeed that's but a dark song it's uh, good worth, dark though I like it it's worth checking out and I know Jeff wanted to get back to descending to the final track on the album a perfect close to Amorica Jeff I mean the best thing about that and, and just that moment where I was like I'm just captivated by their sense of dynamics is that lovely piano play out at the end yeah exactly it's, it no words it's just to them as a band and of course their newest member too is given the basically the featured part there this isn't like a solo per se it's just this these lovely repeating piano lines that take the whole thing to to a to a closure and it makes you realize that this is such a well-sequenced album. You know, Jay talked yeah. about this with Southern Harmony and also with reference to Amorica. This is so much better put together as an experience from beginning to end.
even though you have those two big rock songs that start at the beginning they're very different songs and then every Every time, you know, it, you never spend too much time down with a slow song before you get something that's really exciting to come back to on the next track. I just am I'm really impressed with the entire experience for what what is actually a fairly long album. I think this is like a 50 minute album or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So like you could drag, man. I'm always or I just looked it up. 54 minutes. That's a really long record. I mean, that's not even vinyl anymore. A reasonably length vinyl album. That's the C. Age speaking there that could be bad but nothing ever drags on this record it all feels good even uh you know i know scott told me earlier he said he didn't like p25 London. well he no said if, I I, 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 if <laughs> I had to pick my least favorite it would be it but i still like it <laughs> but i love those little guitar squeals on it they're like wah, wah. i can't even do them like they're so high-pitched right but uh that that's like one of those little quirky moments that, that it's just such variety on you know from a band that you know as you know, can generally be said stayed in a certain lane. Um, they were getting very creative during this era, and it's it's a shame that it it didn't quite last. I guess that takes us to the next album yeah. that they did, which I I actually find myself liking quite a bit. But I guess there's no question that it is a bit of a step down. That's three snakes and one charm. Um, I have no idea what the title means. Maybe one of you guys can inform me about that. Um, but it, it's it's one of those albums. It starts with a really solid song. I think everybody likes Under a Mountain. It's got that great galumphing stair-step guitar riff that mm -hmm. really works. But then there are some songs on it that are legitimately dumb. Like there's that Nebuchadnezzar. That is one of the most terrible riffs <laughs> on a Black Crow song. Oh, it's just like it's so stupidly moronically obvious. And, and, and Rich just keeps on hammering it throughout the entire song. But uh, there are, and there's another one that I that I I feel bad about because it's almost great, which is Bring On, Bring On. It has that acoustic guitar, kind of an intro, and it has a really good verse, but it has like a really boring chorus, very kind of a lame and pedestrian chorus that almost makes me wonder, like, did they get rushed? I'm surprised that they they didn't have the time to finish it but there's still a lot of really great stuff on this record and it's actually a rarity for me in that it's a record that gets better the longer it goes on there's lots of records out there that you know they usually front load all their best material and then by the time you get to the second half it's a bit of a slog where they stashed all of the the sort of second rate crap uh that's not the case here like how much for your wings mm. that is a great exciting chorus i love the chorus on how much for your wings i love one mirror too many with that big pop hook that it has that's a pop song I know Scott loves Pawn Shop, Girl from a Pawn Shop. But, uh, you know, Better When You're Not Alone is great. Evil Eye is a really great, weird way to end it. I think this is, you know, just a step down from Amorica. It still has that sense of daring, the, the adventurousness that you found on Amorica. Some of the material isn't quite as good, 
But it, it's if you really liked that album and you're like, well, let, let's hear more of this kind of Black Crows, you're going to find a lot of it on Three Snakes. Yeah, I really like this album, but I don't love it. And I what I call I call it a wobble because uh, I think it still has a lot of great stuff on it. But there are a few reasons why it doesn't quite connect as well as the last two. And I, I, I think and we'll talk about this in a moment. I, I think if the band were released the very next album, which was shelved for uh, various reasons, it would make more sense in the continuity of the band. Instead, you go from Three Snakes right to By Your Side, and then Three Snakes sticks out more like a sore thumb. Um, to me, Three Snakes is... There's just less cohesion among the songs. It's not that that perfect ride they took you on on Amorica. There's like 12 different little exercises on this album. And there's they spread out a bit more, and there's a little more funk, gospel, folky. There's more acoustic guitar here than there has been in the past couple of albums. Um, and, and some of it works pretty well. Some of it doesn't. Um, um, Rich, you know, uh, Rich played bass on this album for all but one of the tracks. Essentially, they, they had these demos done, brought them to the band, and the band said, well, the, we're about done here, I guess. You, 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 Chris and Rich played most of the tracks. They did, of course, come in and add some things, but Johnny Colt hardly played on Three Snakes, which is why he would be gone uh, very soon. So uh, to the album itself, um, Girl from a Pawn Shop, is I think my favorite track uh, on the album and it reminds me of the George Jones Tammy Wynette Golden Ring song which I also love great country song um, it, it's one of Chris's best set of lyrics this very detailed character profile story um, about about you know anguish and, 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 a, and a breakup and some great lyrics uh, you know in the way Chris delivers you know if we remain friends at best sometimes later no not yet we'll smile and remember it like this. That tail end where they go from Mark Ford's solo to Rich's guitar figure into the P.S. All My Love section. It's about six minutes long, but for me, much like Thorn, it deserves every second it gets. Girl from a Pawn Shop is my favorite track on Three Snakes. I agree with Jeff. I think some of the stronger tracks are toward the back end. Better When You're Not Alone is one of the most straightforward, sweet kind of love songs that Chris ever wrote lyrically. And it does pretty well. Evil Eye is left over from Tall, and so it sounds more Amorica-y. It sounds more uh, dark and and, and, and and reminiscent of Amorica, and it should because it's, it's from those sessions. Um, Blackberry, the single, has a nice little funky stacks groove to it. 
Uh, there wasn't a real breakout single from here. I think Blackberry and Good Friday were worked, and they didn't take off much. There's horns on here from the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. Um, so I like it. I, I, I don't love it. Um, again, I think there are some stories here about what songs aren't here. They were playing some really great songs they would write on the road, and they'd never actually get into record. Uh, one called Exit, which actually dated back a few years. I would have loved to have seen here. May have fit more on Amorica, but could have squeezed it in here. Uh, Pastoral um, is a song that would eventually be kind of salvaged for parts on other songs in the future. That's one. There's one called Just Say You're Sorry, which was on the bonus uh, edition of the album that I I think actually would have fit better on the album than some other tracks. But again, I I find it to be more of a piecemeal album than a whole, and that that is less satisfying for me. I I love this album. Uh, I I think I, I my feeling about this album is probably more positive than both of yours. I sort of analogize this album to the Who by Numbers. Um, I, I think you know. I as as I think you both know, I'm a big a big big fan of the Who. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think one of the uh, one of the things that kind of grates on me sometimes is that Pete Townsend had like these massive ambitions that he was trying to realize on these records, um, and then he just doesn't try that with the Who by Numbers, right? Like the Who by Numbers has no grand ambitions, which is like the first time since like 1966 he hasn't been trying to like do something that's never been done before. And it's just a record of songs um, that ends up being like really personal and really immediate and really kind of honest. And I, and I feel like I have a similar reaction to the Black Crows. Like I feel like their first three records are trying to prove something. Right. Like they're you know, shake your money maker. They're proven that they can write songs and you know, they can play with the big boys. They can sell records. Right. Southern Harmony. They're sure they can do a full sound like Amorica is like almost sort of like the progression to a more, you know, like the crow sound. And this album isn't in that. It, they're not trying to like each one of those. They're like trying to top themselves. Right. They're not trying to top themselves here. And and I think the sound is more scaled back here. Um, that so it since they're not you know like I said one of the challenges I have with this band or which is not to like I think they're probably my favorite band of all time but they are they do err on the pretentious side of things Mm. I think and this album I think is is probably one of their least pretentious records Um, and so for me I can I, I have a much more almost kind of personal relationship to it um and and so i like this the songs are i I think from from my perspective more accessible and 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 i i enjoy it for that reason a lot more um and uh i would say the the production of it i think is less is more stripped down more simple than on amorica it's very elaborate production again I, i don't think they're trying to prove anything um I, a couple other observations. Let me share the ride. Another great Black Crows travel song, right? Which I, I think is is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, a Girl from a Pawn Shop. I think you, you both said it very well. Um, and then the other thing I would point out about this song is here we get a lot. This song is loaded with drug references and like not like high head blues like ha ha isn't right. it fun to get high it's more like oh heroin is a major problem in my life kind of thing. <laughs> like under a mountain right that's yes. a drug song yes nebuchadnezzar that's a drug song one mirror too many 
that's a drug song. Or yeah, it's a cocaine could, song. Yeah, could be yeah, exactly. Evil Eye. That's a drug song. Like, and these are not happy drug songs. These are like life is miserable drug songs. Yeah. And then and I even, would point out too, and like I think maybe one of the reasons I like this record so much, um, how much for your wings. First of all, it's the first time, maybe the only time, no, not the only time, but the first time Chris and Rich duet on a song. And the song is called How Much For Your Wings. And like, they're like questioning whether or not, you know, because they're the Black Crows, right? The wings. They're, two of them are questioning whether or not this this whole thing is actually worth it, right? Like, would you actually pay, you know, we like, you know, is this actually what, you know, is is this is is this what we should have been doing right mm -hmm. um and, and so i i really i dig that Also, I have to say, too, one of my all-time favorite songs, whenever they do this live, I just loved it. Only Halfway to Everywhere, which weirdly <laughs> kind of has a P-Funk vibe. I don't know how else to put it, but, like, it's kind of yes. like, you know. I think Sly and the Family it's a, little, it's a little Parliament, right, yeah. which I love. Um, and they actually do a really great version of it on their live album from 2006, uh, Freaking Roll Into the Fog. Right, with because they have horns on that, and so they don't play very often live because you really need horns to do it right. Uh, and and I, I've just always really loved that song. I guess that brings us to the even more problematic fourth album, By Your Side. Now, before we discuss By Your Side, I suppose this is an album that, that doesn't make a lot of sense unless it's discussed in the context of the Great Lost Black Crows album that Scott turned me on to. He said, like, like listen, like, you, you cannot do this episode without hearing this. This is the album that should have been released. Yes. It's called Band. I guess that was the working title of it. And this isn't, you know, just a bunch of demos or, you know, good ideas that weren't fleshed out. This is a top-to-bottom, fully recorded album. All the arrangements have been thought through. Everything has been put together really well. This was recorded, I believe, in, like, 1998, uh, and I'm not then. sure. Would you say a little before then? Would have been a ninety. Little before then, I think. Yep, ninety-seven. Yep, ninety-seven. It was recorded in ninety-seven. They had it. It was done, and it got shelved and never came out until two thousand and six, when it was on that Lost Crows release. And 
I gotta say, if this had been the follow-up, this would have been a great follow-up. There's so many wonderful songs on band. Another Roadside Tragedy is a fantastic Black Crow song. Best. I love If It Ever Stops Raining, Grinning. There are so many good tunes on this that to this day, I simply have no idea why it was kept away from consumers because I've got to think they would have been much more interested in it than the somewhat generic slot that came out as By Your Side, which had almost no mm. musical relationship to this later on. Yeah, I think I think what the problem I think is what I alluded to earlier is that they weren't selling records anymore. Yes. Right. Like, you know, uh, they sell five million copies of Shake Your Money Maker. They sell two million of uh, Southern Harmony. I think they sell like they inch up to one million for Amorica. They don't you know, three snakes doesn't go platinum. And I think that American, which is was their label, heard this and said there's no hits on this and they were right there were no hits on this but and they rejected it and and they and the crows had never been happy with american records they didn't like rick rubin um and and so they end up moving over to um they end up moving columbia over to columbia which purchases american (laughs) and then they so they make a transition within the columbia family but yeah. So, and if you listen to it, you can sort of imagine from the record company's perspective, like, oh, how are we going to get this band to sell more records? Like, get them back to where they were, right? Like, because that's the thing. Like, the problem being, like, I mean, you listen to the Black Crows up to this point, and you're like, oh, this band has no problems. This band is just really interesting. And even if like Three Snakes and One Charm is a step down, which you know is the consensus opinion, I think. The consensus is also like, wow, if this is where they're going to land, that's really amazing, right? But from the record company's perspective, they're not selling <laughs> records. So they're, they're a problem, which, you know, obviously from an artistic standpoint is mind boggling. But like you listen to, like if you listen to a band from like our perspective, and I totally agree with both of you. Band is incredible, right? There's not a wasted moment on that record. No. It's incredible, but there's no hits on it, right? There's nothing that's going to get DJs to play this record in 1997. And so it's like, well, we have to take you back to like you. You could you could hear it on by your side, which I know <laughs> we're going to talk about in a moment. But you could hear it. they've very clearly been coached to be like, okay, boys, yes. time to go back to basics. Right. Like, let's re- like, let's find lightning in a bottle again and do shake your money maker too. The, you, ha- you have to hear the band. You have to hear the band to make sense of, of, of the Black Crows. You, you just have to, because this album is in my mind, a, a natural progression from three snakes and, and a, an amalgamation of the last three albums. And I, I disagree just a little with Jay. I, I think, I think, and it, maybe it's my blind fandom, I think either Painted Eight or Never Forget This Song 
released may have worked as singles in 1997 or so. I think that, I think it might have been okay. Yes, I, I take your point that the record label's not hearing a, 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 a huge pop rock smash on this album. But look what's on here. Painted 8 and Never Forget, forget This Song would, would have been great singles, I think. I think you have one Stone Cold, absolute classic in Wyoming and Me, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. Donnie Heron from BR549 comes in and plays some, uh, some pedal steel on Wyoming and Me. You're beautiful, but you're flawed. You're desperate, but you're strong. crafted uh, rock songs like Life Fest and Grinnin, uh, although I like the original Grinnin chorus, which you can hear on some of the live uh, uh, versions of the song before the band was put together. Another Roadside Tragedy, Predictable's great. Peace Anyways, a fantastic song that would have closed this album, which is kind of another, uh, um, to me, it's another highlight for Ed Harsh on, on, on the organ on Peace Anyway. Um this is a, a stunner of an album. I mean, it's just it's just so well put together. It, it's, again, a journey album like Amorica. It's sequenced really, really well. And I so wish it would have been released because I think at that point you're talking about now a, 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 a string from Southern Harmony through the band where you have four fantastic albums, even if Three Snakes is a bit of a wobble, and everything just sort of fits together perfectly. Instead... As Jay says, the label says we've got to we've got to have a hit. We're going to bring in Kevin Shirley, who produced the '90s Aerosmith stuff. So you know, yeah, you're the, in, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, and, and Silver Chair too. Yeah. So like some real great stuff. You know, you're in good hands with Kevin Shirley, and we get what was released called "By Your Side." Now, something that uh, two things to know: Johnny Colt's gone. Sven Pippian, who actually played an early version of Mr. Crow's Garden, is into play bass. But more importantly, by far more importantly, Mark Ford has been kicked out. Uh, for heroin for heroin and uh, not, not coincidental no and he is not replaced on this album they hire Audley Freed no. uh, to play live uh, from a band called Cry of Love you may have heard uh, Bad Thing from Cry of Love that's Audley Freed's old band but Audley Freed doesn't play on this also, album also he goes off to play with the Dixie Chicks later on yes. too yes. by the way <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's it's rich handling all the guitars on by your side, which means that wonderful guitar interplay from previous albums is not there. And right. it also suffers because, look, guys. The songs aren't good. Chris, this is well, like the only album. Well, these these next two albums I'm going to have so little to say about. Uh, my, my commentary, <laughs> my entire sum commentary about By Your Side is uh, that it's it's not good. And I find very little of it uh, to comment on at all. It's just not memorable. I actually, I actually think Rich's riffs are pretty good. If you stripped everything off and just had Rich play his riffs for most of these songs, I think I'd like it. Chris's lyrics largely oh, are atrocious yeah he's out of gas lyrically uh, completely atrocious on by your side and he just told a story recently about the title track by your side which crows fans know is a ever if it ever starts raining with basically a replaced chorus for by your side chris says that he wrote if it ever stops raining the label said nah it stinks you gotta change the chorus and chris of course being chris said no man i'm not changing anything and everyone else in the band basically said chris just change the freaking lyrics. And so Chris, as a, a to get back at everyone, made it by your side. You know, you guys are really by my side, standing up for me as the, as the label tries to change my lyrics. Uh, there are only two songs, maybe two and a half, that I think are worth really checking. Horsehead, which I had always heard, or at least maybe heard the song as. Oh, that's a drug song. Well, it's about it's about song. Mark Ford, right? Uh, yeah. Horsehead said well, you're going to die. Well, horse H is it's right. about heroin. Yeah, it's it's not exactly a subtle title. Okay, <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's yeah. really yeah. not. Uh, no. But it's got it does have a great rich riff. I love Rich's riff on Horsehead. <laughs> Vice is the other song, but the closer on the album that I think is a classic gross song. I mean, they, they could play that today and it would still sound great. And I do like Diamond Ring, which kind of has the sappy, you know, the huge backing vocals, but those ascending riffs through the chorus uh, are really nice. I like Diamond Ring. And again, some of the guitar work from Rich on like Then She Shed My, Said My Name and, uh, and even like Ticking My Heart Around, the slide is pretty sweet. But man, those lyrics from Chris are are really rough. There were a few B-sides here that maybe should have made the record instead if you're looking for It Must Be Over or You Don't Have to Go. Uh, they, they did Peace Anyway again for this one. Peace Anyway, that's a good song. Still didn't make this album. Uh, there are some B-sides that are pretty good, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, especially coming from Three Snakes. Uh, without the bridge of, of the band, there's it's just it's completely unexpected. And uh, and as Jay kind of said, really it's just a label saying, let's let's go back to the way you were eight years ago. 
And before we get to talking yeah. about, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, Jay, what were you oh, going to say? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I generally agree. I like I, I there's this there's this bit in um, the office where Michael Scott, you know, the the main character, you know, makes a joke of, or it's accidentally a joke where he says, you know, people like to open speeches with a joke. I like to try two or three because one of them's gonna you know in case one of them doesn't land i feel like that's how they, this album yeah. opens like <laughs> go faster and kicking my heart around it's like you know go faster is the opener well and if you didn't like that one kicking my heart around <laughs> well here's the next opener what do you think of this one right um and so i think you know i do really like i mean and by your side is a great song i actually think that that it the lyric that they made the studio record company made him change actually makes more sense yes, if it ever it stops does. raining doesn't actually make sense the rest the of the band was them. right <laughs> yeah i think they were oh i, I agree with you 100 percent on horsehead i so i think the three tracks on this that i really like are by your side horsehead and virtue and vice virtue and vice is a great song Congregation, I think work it works worked really well live. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thing is that like very rarely, very rarely, Chris Robinson might you can say like a lot of things about him, like as a lyricist, like he's he's pompous, he's kind of a jerk, right? Really high on his own product. But like this album is where he's he's treakly. I think like diamond ring. And then she said, my name mm -hmm. is really, and only a fool. I think is it's treacly. Like it's really, I don't know what he, I don't know what they were thinking. Um, but I, I do, I like, cause go tell the congregation is the testify song on this album. And so when he's actually singing it live, um, it always kind of worked for me. Uh, quickly before, so I was actually going to say before we get to talking about the worst Black Crows album, does anybody want to comment on uh, the Black Crows as a surprisingly competent Led Zeppelin cover band? Well, I think <laughs> I think they were better than competent. I saw them on the tour too before it stopped, as as Jay did, and uh, I think they were pretty damn good. Uh, you can hear live at the Greek. There were no Crow songs on there because of a label dispute, but there were a bunch of Zep, Zep tunes and a bunch of. Uh, covers and I, I think it's pretty darn good. Page loved playing with them because he said it's the first time he could do songs like Ten Years Gone because there's so many parts um, that he couldn't really do them right previously. And we have Rich Robinson and Audley Freed and Jimmy Page on the same stage. You can pull things like that off. Uh, I thought it sounded pretty great. Also, the best I think the best recording of my all-time favorite Black Crows cover, uh, which is of Fleetwood Mac's "Oh Well." Yeah. Far, far and away my favorite cover they ever did um and actually you know i i list i return to the black crows with jenny page all the time and um recently i was listening to um 
uh, the, the, the show in Pittsburgh, which I, I recently got. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing I, I, I don't, re- I'm not really sure, like the, the one aspect that, you know, doesn't really fit actually is Chris Robinson. I, I think he sort of ends up having trouble with the, with the Robert Plant role and just ends up shouting the lyrics a lot, at least in the live version that I in like, maybe they did a yeah. better job of sequencing things at live at the Greek, but he ends up sounding a little overwhelmed. Um, but that, you know, rich, rich Robinson and Steve Gorman are just perfect mm-hmm. for Jimmy page. Just, just perfect. What, what more do you want? You know, so yeah. And by the way, that I I think remains like if you're looking for some something surprising, you know, like that live at the Greek album is like the best live album that like nobody ever listened to. <laughs> well, they put a lot. Right. Of I some... mean, it wasn't it wasn't released on CD, was it? It was, it was like it was, it, on... it was like it was like a TV giveaway or something like that. It was right? on yeah. TVT it... records, and they tried to do it via like Music Master, where you would print your own CD. Yeah, it was, it was a whole one of those early yes. web disasters. Yeah. The whole thing was a disaster. That whole. I mean, it apparent, you know, we'll see, you know, the, the, the story of that has yet to been told, but like the, 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 that could have Jimmy Page and the Black Crows. And I think that speaks to like the self-destructiveness of the band. Like if you listen to that album, you think to yourself, my goodness, what they could have done with Jimmy Page, who was just sitting around. He didn't have anything to do. <laughs> right. Jimmy Page is still sitting around. He still doesn't have anything to do. Basically, once Robert Plant kissed him goodbye in the late 90s, Jimmy Page is hanging out there and hooks up with the Black Crows. And the whole thing lasts like six months. It's just like that band has self-destructive streak. Yes. I don't know what their problem is, but it's really evident that they, they never were able to do anything more than. Than like a dozen shows in a live album nobody ever listened to. Reportedly, there's more to that story that might be coming out in Steve Gorman's new book with Steve Hyden, to give a little plug for that. Yes, yes, I actually am looking forward to that now, now that I've gotten myself familiar with the band. What I'm not looking forward to is a conversation that lasts more than 60 seconds talking about (laughs) lions. Uh, This is, I think we all agree, the worst Black Crows album. I'm going to just read from my notes. Lions is just terrible. Licking is one of the worst goddamn songs I've ever heard in my life. And I don't think I was exaggerating there. (laughs) And that was the Uh, single. That was the single. That was the single. Such an agreement. 
aggressively bad song and then there's like no use in lying that's sludge this this awful, band awful. sounds entirely bereft of inspiration that's my full sum total of thoughts on this disaster of a record i'll let jay wrap up because i know he likes it more than i do i think lions is their worst album and i think one of the reasons is chris's voice is totally shot by this point i think it's one of the reasons why it's not great on the jimmy page shows and he is his voice is just shredded at this point too much too many shows and too much other stuff uh, going, going yeah, through there. Yeah, stuff. Um, it, it, he is straining to hit like regular notes on Lions on a whole bunch of uh, midnight, in the, midnight from the Inside Out, Miracle to Me, Lay It All On Me. He's struggling to hit like normal notes on Lions. And the songs, I think, are, are weak. Um, the only good, you know, soul singing, I think, is by far the best one on the album. Midnight from the Inside Out, okay. Uh, Cypress Tree Recycles, No Speak, No Slave. Um, Young Man, Old Man is their version of Nobody's Fault But Mine. Um, to me, this is their their worst effort, and not surprising that they kind of threw up their hands after this and said, uh, let's not do anything for a while. Uh, yeah, so I like this album. I'll just, you know, I'm a contrarian by nature, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I, I fully recommend, and every time I talk to Crows fans, they, they, the only two people I know who like this album who are Died in the Wool Crows fans are myself and my wife. <laughs> um, just one of those things. I don't know. Produced by Don Was, or is it Don Was? I don't know how, man, whatever. Um, and so they, they leave Columbia and they go to V2 Records, which is Richard, whatever, Branson. Richard Branson's, yeah. right? Uh, you know, Virgin, you know, his outfit, right? And they, they bring on a producer to really, and, and this is their most, I think that the, the producer's footprint is most evident here. Um, I think that uh, I, 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 I agree. Like, this is the thing. I agree with everything you guys have said, but I still really like the album anyway. I don't know. This is <laughs> one of those things for me. Like, even the bilge, you know, like, um, so I kind of like, um, the song, come on, uh, as, uh, like, so I like midnight from the inside out, which is a, is another, as a drug song and a good drug song. Uh, and for me, uh, like I saw them on Halloween in 2005 and they opened with midnight from the inside out, which was just incredible. So I'll always associate it with that. Um, I, I just love that song. Um, I think, uh, but come on. Actually, if you you read the lyrics of "Come On," the song "Come On" is a song about how much ass they kick on stage. <laughs> it's 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 real. Literally, it's a song about what a good band they are, and they like to um, stick it to you. Yeah, and Cosmic Friend, which is tra which is the eleventh track, actually references itself. Yes. Uh, it, it, when you're feeling lonely, uh, you know just what to do: put on track eleven and get on with the groove. <laughs> which I, I always kind of like that they did that. So I, I mean, I, 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 Rich likes this album, and I, I like it. I like how I like it that it's different. 
Um, and I like how heavy the guitar sound is on it. And this, I think this is an album where Rich ends up kind of running the show because his solo stuff ends up being like during the hiatus. It's, it's a lot heavier than what. So I, I'm, I'm more a team rich on this one. I, I like. I mean, and, and like, that's one of the things I'm not really going to make the case for it because objectively, or I don't know, <laughs> this is all subjective, but like, I get exactly where you guys are coming from, but I still, I don't care. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'll probably look, and Alliance is one of those records that I listen to pretty embarrassingly regularly. <laughs> I like it. Well, I have a feeling you're not going to be picking any of its songs for your top five at the end of the show, though. Okay. No, I won't. Although I will say that um, Soul Singing, I think, is legitimately one of their all-time great songs. Um, They played Soul Singing like 500 times live, like which is incredible considering that it only came out in 2000, right. 2001, and then they go on hiatus. So they basically played this thing in the 2001 tour, and then and it's all of the play basically comes from after they get back together in 2004, right? Which is incredible. And like that song, again, just a really like great. Uh, illustration of what makes this band work, which is Chris and Rich. Like Chris has, Rich has a great riff, right? Uh, and Chris just lays on a great vocal. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm not as big a fan of this song as uh, like uh, you know the like I didn't. Every time I went to see them, they played it. I didn't need to see it every time because uh, it's really about Kate Hudson. And right. I mean, give me a break, right? Because I mean, that's the other thing too, right? He's Chris is like divorced his first wife or I don't know which wife he's on at that point. I think divorced his first wife and now is in love with Kate Hudson. Right. So like, and she's got a soul sing, whatever, blah. But otherwise, like if I don't think about that, I think about how much I like this song. All right, Scott, you want to briefly take us through the interregnum period up to the next album? So very quickly, Steve Gorman leaves the band in January 2002, and that that pretty much does it. I mean, Gorman's, like I said, a third brother. He's gone, and they're they're done. Band goes on hiatus. Some solo albums. Chris had a band called New Earth Mud. Rich put out an album, I think, Papers from around that time. Paper, yeah. It's all all right. Hookah Brown, he does Hookah Brown. That's right, yep. Uh, And then in 2005, they're going to do it again. Ed Harsh is there. Sven Pippian is there. Mark Ford is there. Who's not there? Steve Gorman. He's playing with Stereophonics. Right. And we're like, at least I'm like, I don't know. Like, Steve is such a huge part of this band for me. It's okay. He came back after like three shows. They brought in the replacement drummer for about four shows, and then Steve comes back at all as well. So they do the reunion tour. I saw them in Milwaukee during that tour. They were really good. Oh, yeah, that was a good show. That's a good show, yeah. They did... uh, they did cancel everything on that show, which is one of my uh-huh. favorite Ron Wood tracks from that solo album. Uh, yeah. Um, and Luther, uh, so after they, they do the, the reunion tour, 
Mark leaves again. He says it's because he doesn't want to relapse. Uh, Ed gets either kicked out or, or leave oh, the band. I can't he's recall. fired. Ed's he's fired. fired. Yeah. I think that's drug related, too. Oh, yeah. That was definitely. And, and, well, Ed, Ed dies yes, from drugs. Ed, I mean, Ed never cleaned up. Yep. Uh, and so before they go into the studio for the next album, which is called War Paint, they bring in Luther Dickinson. And I had known Luther because he's in a band called North Mississippi All-Stars with his brother. And I That's love it. It's a great band. That's I love them from band. their debut album. And I was really excited that Luther was going to take the place of, uh, of the lead guitar in the band. And I must say, I was not disappointed. Jeff, I know for you, you love War Paint. And I think you're right. This, this is a reunion that is worthwhile. I'm stunned. I, I, I was like, you told me in advance that you thought this was a really worthy effort. So when I put it on, I think I, I listened to the first song, which is, you know, was a goodbye daughter of the revolution. Yep. I'm like, that's okay. Walk believers walk. Uh, I don't know. And then, Oh, Josephine came on. I think you had said that you really liked that song. Yes. First half of the song. I don't know. I was thinking, but this is adequate. This feels like, okay, this is not a band that's embarrassing themselves, but I don't know if I'm really hearing it and then by the time it gets to that incredible back half of oh josephine that final epic play out of the song um i thought okay they're back they actually did it they actually managed to come together <laughs> and then the most amazing thing about this album is that from that point on it just gets better and better and better and better there is again this I, I think this is this is one of my two albums that I'll be picking at the end of the show, and I, you know I I, I, I I like it nearly as much as a, as a Morica, which shocks me. Wow. Um, uh, the things about this album that I like are like the weird diversity. There's a song here called "Moving On Down the Line." That's yeah, a good one. It's like psychedelia yeah. done country rock style. It's this dreamlike song with these hazy hypnotic drums. It's fantastic. It's unlike anything else in the Black Crows catalog. Bird. Wounded Bird is so good. That set your mind to fly chorus at the end, you know, where Chris is singing, set your mind to fly, set your mind to fly. Wow. I, I just, I, I'm so impressed with that. But I guess maybe even it's the final song on the album that really seals the deal for me. It's a song with yeah. a stupid sounding name. Whoa, Mule. <laughs> like, you know, like, whoa, Mule. I guess he's, you know, I'm not sure what the title is supposed to mean, but I love the approach. It's it's sort of a, a country blues rock raga set to a harmonica, an acoustic guitar. And you got Luther playing his, his electric guitar there really quietly and tastefully. And then one of the primary instruments is harmonium yes. same instrument that song we can work it out by the beatles you know and yeah. these this these really tribal percussion or if it's drums or percussion i can't tell what but it's this beautiful beautiful little elegy at the end of an album that 
feels like a complete rebirth. And the other thing that's really notable about that album is that it's so much more country than anything that they had mm-hmm. done before. Now, maybe that's the influence of, of, of Luther as a guitarist, right? Or maybe it's a conscious decision, you know, by, by Chris and Rich to go in a different direction. But they wear it so well. They are so comfortable playing this kind of music. And it adds that extra extra shade that extra coloration in their arsenal they can still play rock songs they can still you know you know play bluesy numbers you know chris can still do his his testify and preaching thing but now they have this sort of you know very delicate country touch to them and you hear it all throughout war paint you hear it on the next album too and it it, it, it does feel like a genuine rebirth it's just such an impressive album especially because reunion albums are almost always disasters this is the opposite of a disaster this is as essential as any one of their classic era records it's not it's not a hard call oh I, I love this record i love this record so much i loved it the first time it came out i you know and i, I listened to nothing else i think this is background on this too um so go back to 2001 right they're clearly exhausted they take this hiatus you know they get back together and they tour relentlessly mm-hmm. in 2005 2006 but this is not like and think about the black crows as they would always tour right and it was a question of like whether or not they were touring like for the money or they were touring for like the love of it right in 2005 and 2006 is a tour that they are doing just because they are they want to play together they're doing like double sets yes i forgot uh, about that like yeah. they're like three hour shows they're doing um, and they, they, and, and they are yeah. digging deep into their catalog, and like they are just and like this is also right. Chris and Rich Robinson hate each other's guts so much, but the two of them actually do like this little side project of like duets, like just the two of them, like acoustic stuff, right? They're like joking on stage, you're like actually getting along with each other, and like. It's almost like they realize what they had and they're making a conscious decision to like where and and you can see that right with the with the with the title of the album right they are not giving up they're putting on their war paint right like they're in the battle and like you hear that with like the song goodbye daughters of the revolution right Open your eyes and see the solution. Hallelujah. Come join the Jubilee. So let's keep on running through the gates of the city. To give up now would be such a pity. And don't you want to see the ship go down with me? Like this is this is a band that is like like has it, they, they're not getting back together like you know, like the small faces got back together after like Humble Pie broke up. And the faces broke up. So, like, Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane were like, oh, I guess we got to do something now. Like, and it's garbage. <laughs> it's not like that. They are, they are coming back together because they realize they belong together.
And I think this speaks to like Jeff's observation about how this this album is is more country influ- influenced. It has kind of a country vibe. If you listen, and I I had like every. 2005 show that I could get my hands on and like their covers during that period get a lot more country oriented yes. right they'd yeah. start doing the fly burrito brothers more often yep. Although they, they do were, them they a were, lot they cover the they, they, they did them before but they're right. doing them now more frequently yes, yes. They're, they're covering the band more often and like this is the thing I think about the Black Crows that's like the, the secret to them because like as we've alluded to a couple times um, during the the show is that like Chris and Rich like hate each other's guts but like I think the thing that always worked is that they had a shared musical vision and like for some reason the two of them get into a country vibe and so you don't get like country rock country rock but you get like the Black Crows take on country rock which I think is is really amazing and I don't I, I mean like you can go track by track through this at record um, and just see their level, like they're in, they are back, you know, like they're back because they want to be back and they're committed to it. And like, they've they poured their heart and soul into this. Uh, and like that great line in woe mule, we're dirty, but we're dreaming <laughs> and we'll both get there someday. You know, like, ah, it's just such a great record. And I just remember when this came out, I was like, yes, I was so happy. I was like proud to be black crows fan from listening to this record, like, oh man, they were, they'd like knocked it out of the park. Uh, you guys talk so well about war paint. I think Jeff sells goodbye daughter is a little bit short. I think that's a great lead off track. Uh, as a, almost a jealous again, vibe, but a little more countrified with that Adam McDougal, the new keyboardist is that waterfall piano. Uh, Luther's touches are fantastic. And most importantly, Chris's voice is so much better. Uh, downtime or whatever, right? It's it's so it sounds so much better throughout War Paint. Uh, oh, Josephine, which which Jeff alluded to, that's I, I think a, a stunning song, even if it is a bit of a rewrite of Girl from a Pawn Shop, which I think it is, but I don't care because it's so brilliant. Um, it's their best ballad in years and years. Nothing is rushed; it just unfolds. Uh, as Jeff said, it you know, starts starts slow. Once it hits that second half, that especially that coda. Oh, it is just fantastic. Oh, Josephine is a stunning song from Warpaint. It's too late to play it safe, so let's let it all ride. Yeah, let's uh, let it all ride. Let it all ride. Josephine, you're great. And it's, it's consistent. I mean, from start to finish, a very consistent album. Uh, Jeff talked about Woe Mule to close things off. Fantastic. 
I like Locust Street quite a bit, uh, which is a very country-tinged song. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time because we have to talk about uh, the next album and get to our, our two and five. But suffice to say, uh, as the three of us both, or three of us all agree, really seek out Warpaint. And oh, I, I love this record. I can't tell you how, you know, Jay's right, how, how proud to kind of keep the Black Flo- Black Crow's flame going while they were gone to come back with an album like this and to be a fan and to say, yeah, these are my guys and they're still making great music. Yeah. That, that was the feeling of Warpaint. Um, so I guess that yeah, takes us to totally. the final album, Before yes. the Frost. Um, and uh, I guess at the time, nobody thought it would be the final album. It seemed like to be the second in a, in a critical rebirth and they, they've come back and and then here's the follow-up to Warpaint and it's not quite as good I'd say but it's still really good I mean what was the idea behind this one they, they go to Levon Helm's barn yes Levon Helm would do these things where he like every weekend he'd like you know have like a live concert people would come in and play for you know people up in like Woodstock New York the Crows decided to record their new album live in front of the audience so every one of these songs you hear the applause at the end that's real that's actual people in the audience that had come to see the Crows do their new stuff um and, and it's a pretty great record as well i think the one thing that always throws me for a loop when i listen to it is the first song good morning captain which i think <laughs> is actually my favorite song on the record um it sounds exactly like levon helm is singing like to the point where i actually looked like on wikipedia to see if like he had done a guest vocal on it because chris you know is clearly channeling his voice on that he sounds like a dead ringer for like you know late 70s and maybe post band era levon um just an almost bizarre act of, of channeling someone else's musical spirit Which kind of gives you a sense of where this album is located. This is this is also a, a significantly more countryfied sound than the earlier Black Crows records. But I think it's a pretty great one. I think I Ain't Hiding is another fantastic mm-hmm. song. Not as country this time. It's, it's driven by that thrum and bass line. Feels like a drug song too, doesn't it? <laughs> it is the drug. Yeah, it's a yeah, drug I mean, song. It's pretty straightforward about that in terms of the lyrics. Yeah. But that's a fantastic song. And um, so, I mean, I don't want to take up too much time since we're trying to keep this to a, you know, to a schedule. But yes, I think this was a great album it seemed like they had a lot more left in the can and then who the heck knows what happened after that well i well i, I think that the uh the 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 tale is uh, is being laid here because this is the first album where you have songs that were not co-written by correct. the brothers yes right cuz i ain't hiding is a chris robinson song and the last place that love lives is a chris robinson song and then what is home is a rich robinson song so they're not co-authored here anyway go go ahead scott i was actually about to make that exact point so 
Thank you, yeah. Jay. Um, yeah. This this album makes me happy and, of course, angry. Happy because it really is good. I I want Terry Teachout to hear this album if he's listening because this is so much like Cahoots era band for me. Yeah. Um, and they do it so well. They do it so well. Uh, Luther Dickinson is a perfect fit in the Black Crows, a perfect fit, and that this is the last bit of music we get from the band, period, <laughs> and with Luther just makes me... Ugh. However, going back to these album, to this album, I'm really always discovering something I like about uh, most of these songs. It really rewards repeated listening. Good Morning Captain is fantastic. I love Appaloosa from, the, from, the, from Before the Frost. Uh, Houston, don't dream about me. I ain't hiding. Uh, and the second part, which was a download only called "After the Freeze," that's even country. Until the freeze, or until the freeze. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, that's even countryer. It's 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 great music. There's a, a seven plus minute song called "Greenhorn," which is gorgeous. I wanna wake up in the morning. That second album is great. I return to these two, uh, you know, these two parts of this album really often, and I always find good things. There's, you know, that 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 very strict kind of two guitar, uh, Ford rich dynamic is replaced by this kind of vibe and and these loose grooves. And it really, this album, you can see exactly how they would proceed from here. It opened up the future, I think, as a, as a band, as a working unit. Uh, to create more music in this vein, and that was not to be, which we'll, we'll touch on in a sec. But go ahead, Jay. Yeah, uh, this is my favorite Black Crows album, uh, Before the Frost and then Until the Freeze, because I, I just always sort of see them as of a piece with each other. Um, it, Like you guys said, it's it's much more countrified, but it's very eclectic. I remember uh, the, the track that they released before the album, like the teaser track they released was I Ain't Hiding. Yes. Remember they came out and I was like, oh, I wonder what they're <laughs> going to be doing there. This is a, a, like, which story? And then I Ain't High doesn't fit with like anything else they did on the entire the entire record. I really like Good Morning Cap, uh, Good Morning Cap, Captain. Uh, Appaloosa is a great song. Sometimes the sun makes beggars believers and sometimes the shrine is built to deceivers. In between let
still makes a lo- lonely sound. Um, Houston, don't dream about me. That's one of my all-time favorite Black Crow songs. Another good travel song. Uh, the last place that love lives, which is Chris's, uh, he wrote that himself. Um, and then uh, uh, there's a great on until the freeze. I mean, I could go on and on about all these songs. Uh, there's a great. They did a cover of Manassas. Uh, which you know the diehards among the listeners will know was the Stephen, Stephen Stills, Stills project yeah. with Chris Hillman, uh, and they did a song from Manassas' second album, which is not a very good record, but uh, so many times, uh, and it's actually a duet that Chris and Rich sing together, which in retrospect is is pretty gosh darn darn haunting, um, but it, it, to me. See, I and and I, I want to, Scott. You said something that really kind of uh, struck a, a st- so st- strikes a nerve, but really taps into a feeling that I have. This record is easily my easily my favorite Black Crows record, and it also is the thing that makes me angriest because, like, here we have. I think this album is the level of musical natural raw talent that these these guys have right especially chris and rich together but then when they get a really good lead guitarist as they have Mm -hmm. here with luther right and they still have and i think sven is you know johnny colt who's he right like just a great band that they have and like but now they have 20 years of hard-won experience having written songs performed songs they're like master craftsmen it's not just the raw talent that is manifest in a song like jealous again but like now they're like middle age in in a good way like now they're master craftsmen they were like journeymen before now they're master (laughs) craftsmen and like their full the full spectrum of their brilliance is on display here but they hate each other so much that and they let their vanity and their ego or who knows what it is get the better of them and they throw the whole thing away. And so like, I listen to this record and like the last song on until the freeze, a fork in the river time to think twice, change directions, keep warm night. Right. And like, and it's like, that's the last thing they're ever going to do. Damn it. <laughs> that's my attitude. And it probably will be the last thing because I know we got to rush here, but oh, they're uh, never, they're yeah, never getting back. Essentially, together. I mean, Chris and Rich wanted to do different things from best I can tell. And, and, and Chris basically gave an ultimatum saying, look, uh, I want, as Jeff alluded to very early in the show, uh, approximately 90% of all the money. He, he wanted to take uh, half of the other half he didn't have. He wanted to kick Steve Gorman out of the band, allegedly, and make him a hired gun and a salary guy. And, of course, Rich and Steve said, no, thank you. And that was it. They, you know, imploded. And Rich said at some point in the past year, I don't have a brother anymore. Um, it yeah, seems their relationship. Really nasty. And dissing each other yep. in the in the press, too. Like, and I, I mentioned this earlier, like, I think the thing that brought them back together in 2005 was a shared musical vision. Like, despite the fact that they like they're apparently neither of them are all that pleasant to be around (laughs) and they fight apparently over everything, but they always saw eye to eye. I think even amidst the conflict, like the end result, like they were really proud of what they did together. Mm -hmm. They had a shared musical vision or they could find forge a shared musical vision through the conflict. Like what we were talking about, like as tall evolved into Amorica. Right. But like the thing though, is that and and I, I was sort of aware, like the problems are sort of like 
uh, being laid bare before the actual split, right? Because as I mentioned, you know, you have separate songwriting credits, but then like two thousand, I think it's two thousand thirteen. Chris Robinson starts the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, which I think is a very pointed diss of his brother, sure, right? To call it the Chris <laughs> Robinson Brotherhood, and I went to see them live when they came to Pittsburgh, thinking, oh, this will be good. I walked out halfway through because it was like just grateful dead trippy hippie stuff and it was just like i don't want to listen to this they were doing like a 10 minute jam on the bob dylan song tough mama from planet waves and it's like i don't want a three minute version of tough mama thank you very much but like i think that speaks to sort of the thing is like chris robinson is going off into the like this psychedelic you know grateful dead kind of thing and like rich isn't and like you can see this it, like their disses of each other in the press are very pointed yes. like because chris said about rich like he's just in a black crows cover band and then rich said about chris like he's just in a grateful dead cover band so it's <laughs> like on top of like all like the the reasons they hate each other now they don't like agree on music anymore right. and i think that's what what's killed it like that's like like chris and like the thing is like Rich Robinson is now with a band called the Magpie Salute, which, by the way, is a reference to Good Morning Captain, yes. right? Like, and he's got Mark Ford back, and he's got Sven Pippian back, and then he had Eddie Harsh back before Eddie Harsh died of a drug or overdose, right? So, and he's got like Mo, he's got like Charity White, who was the, one of their backup singers. She's back, like, and like if you go see the Magpie Salute, which, by the way, you should because they're awesome. They sound very much like the Black Crows, not derivative. They sound like the Black Crows project is continuing, sure. right? Like yes. Rich is still doing that, right? Chris Robinson, if you go see the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, it's like um, it's very much like I, I don't know what it is. It's not my it's not my jam to say the least. <laughs> I, Grateful Dead like I don't know, but it sounds very different, and I think that's probably what drove them apart ultimately. There it is. The political beats look at. The Black Crows. This point of the show, we allow all of our uh, contributors to give you two albums you should own and five songs you have to hear from our band. We turn to Jay Cost first for his list of two and five. Jay. Yes, two and five. So I'm going to go the contrary, the contrarian route here with the two albums. Uh, Three Snakes and One Charm, right? And that's my contrarian take. Uh, but absolutely not contrarian before the frost until the freeze. I love that record. I, I just, I adore it. So best songs, stare it cold. Uh, my morning song gone only halfway to everywhere and goodbye daughters of the revolution. So that's my two and five. Uh, and for me, um, I still think it's those two back to back. I think they're just towering over everything. Southern harmony and musical companion and Amorica are the two Black Crows albums you, you just have to have. Uh, in terms of songs, boy, this was tough. Um, Sometimes Salvation from, from Southern Harmony, I think, is one of the first times that they became the Black Crows. That was something that was theirs. Uh, from Amorica, Cursed Diamond, again, Chris's best vocal performance, I think, ever as a Black Crow member. And then I'm cheating, kind of, by taking two. Yeah, Ballad and Urgency and Wiser Time, those two songs linked together are just breathtakingly good. Feathers, I really think you've got to hear Feathers. Go check it out from the, uh, from the Lost Crows album. And from, from Warpaint, I think, oh, Josephine is, is really is one of the high points oh, of the song. band. It's just fantastic. And it's not a sick song, but one song that we didn't mention that I think you should check out if you're a Black Crows fan and don't know about it is one called Title Song, 
which is on one of their live albums they, they put out late, but the better versions are earlier with, with Mark playing in, in say, like, 90, what, 96, 97. So check out title song yeah, as well. Yeah, that's a good song, too. Yeah. Jeff, Definitely. to you. All right, yeah, for mine, um, it's going to be Amorica, a pretty obvious call. Uh, and then the next one is going to be Warpaint. I think those are the two albums that I would say that, you know, if you're going to hear this band at their peak and then this band as they evolved and they gracefully evolved into an older age, those are the ones that, that really catch both aspects of the crows. For my five songs, I'll start with Seeing Things, which is the, the first really good song I think they ever did off of Shake Your Money Maker. Then I'll go with Thorn in My Pride off of Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. Then if I have to pick one song on Amorica, it's going to be a conspiracy. I just think that's such a great rock song. Uh, then I'm going to go with a strange one from Three Snakes and a Charm. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say How Much for Your Wings, hmm. uh, which I think uh, is, is a song, song that, that that really gets me on the chorus alone. Yep. That, that that very, very interesting. Very Again, you know, it's it's not a blues rock move. It's a it's a very almost dreamy, semi-psychedelic folk move. And then the last one I'll, I'll, I'll go with, the one I'll end with, is uh, Woe Mule, the, the final song on Warpaint, uh, which is, uh, to me, just you know, one of the most beautiful things they ever did. I, I love the, the raga feel. I, I love the, the valedictory lyrics. Uh, in a way, it feels like uh, this and not, you know, uh, the last song on uh, Before the Frost should have been the final final you know song in the black crow's career because i feel like it, it it sums up everything that they were about uh, in a very kind of non-characteristic way because it's it's again such a country folk thing as opposed to like the hard blues rock stuff mm-hmm. that they initially became famous for but i think it's one of the finest songs of their career I think it says something, by the way, that the three of us all, when we picked the five songs, <laughs> all, all three of us picked something from Warpaint. Yeah. Yeah. I think also that we yeah. picked 15 different songs. We may have. Yeah. I was trying to That's a good that point. Out. That's another good point. Yeah. Um, again, because the, the Crows really did I love the Black Crows. From time to time. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorites. Jay, thank you for being with us. We thank Jay Oh, Cost. thanks, guys. At JP Cost on Twitter, visiting scholar at AEI and check out his book, The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the Creation of American Oligarchy. Thank you, Jay. Jeff, thanks for, you know, going through that mountain of material that I parked on your doorstep. Yeah, well, you know what? Say what you want, but, you know, I'm still breaking the band up. (laughs) Find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.